0: Stay tuned for more
1: rock and roll. All right. Welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. My name is Don DiMuccio, and I've been social distancing since junior high. Later on in the (laughs) show, we'll be talking to film producer Stephanie Bennett, who recounts some truly harrowing experiences working with Chuck Berry on the classic biopic, Hill Hill Rock and Roll. But first, let me introduce my co-host for today, a man who has done work with Ronnie Wood, Barbara Streisand, he toured with Clarence Clemens, he starred in the off-Broadway musical, The Buddy Holly Story. But all of that pales in comparison to his playing with my band, Black and White, on and off for a decade. Please welcome yes. to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, Eric Fontana. Ow, 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 ow. Oh, please don't do Hello, that. Hello, baby. <laughs> We're going to get stricken off iTunes for that. They frown upon <laughs> any fun.
2: How are you, Eric? I'm good. I'm good. I'm hanging in there like everybody else, staying healthy and safe during this uh, nonsense.
1: I know. It is tough. It's tough on uh, everybody. Yep. So talk to me a little bit about what you've done over the years. Like I said, you've you've done a lot of work. Was it
2: engineering? Well, assistant engineering. All of those things that you mentioned uh, were done in the early 90s when I uh, moved out to Los Angeles um, for about two years. And I, um, I did what a lot of musicians did. I kind of went in through the side door because I'm not a full-blown engineer and I never wanted to be, but I wanted to be in the studio environment. So I, I was an assistant engineer and Basically, would, you know, help set up mics, break stuff down, Mm. uh, you know, wrap cables, just like the nuts and bolts of it. And it was a great education. So, you know, I got to some of them were in really large recording studios. Some of them were in smaller project studios. So I got to see uh, Ron Wood do demos, Maurice White do some songwriting demos. Um, the first record I ever worked on was no Doubt's first record, oh, um, which be- was the one before Tragic Kingdom, and uh,
1: that's before that's they the broke first- big, right?
2: It was, yeah, yeah. So this is this is before Tragic Kingdom, and and you know I literally uh, was like I said setting up mics, just doing all the nuts and bolts stuff, and it was a great education for me. Uh, a lot of folks are are lucky enough to do that, and I'm really grateful for that because I saw everything from A to Z what happens in a recording studio, and then I, later on, uh, uh, about half a year later, I got hired by Barbara Streisand's engineer really uh amazing grammy award-winning guy named john arias who worked with um, bob Seeger, he worked with jeff beck yeah. and uh worked with bb king and so he was her engineer at uh b and j studios which was a transferring studio it wasn't a recording studio so the so the main purpose of this place was transfer all of her analog catalog onto digital for release for cds through sony music which was a very long process because you know even then she she had had you know, my gosh, twenty or fifteen or twenty albums out. So they started out with her stuff in the in the sixties, and it was literally taking the original reel-to-reel tape and transferring them. So it was it was uh, it was at the early stages of of transferring. So I got to see how that worked, and you know, again, I was assistant engineer for that. Was it she Was, incredible. For, was she was,
1: present for any of the sessions or any of the transfers? Not,
2: not really, but I did meet her briefly a couple of times at our house. I I, I used to get sent to her house to drop off pre-masters that she would approve. And then we would give them, we would bring them to Sony. So it was, it was actually like the the digital DAT tapes. You remember DAT tapes, digital audio tapes. It was like a mini cassette. And then she would give the AOK or this needs tweaking, that needs tweaking. And then I would bring it back to uh, to our studio. And then when it was ready to roll, I would hand deliver it to Sony Music. So it was, it was amazing. And then we ended up doing a lot of other stuff. Um, We did some stuff for Sony uh, for the Jacksons. So like post-Jackson 5 after they left Motown. So Shake Your Body, that era, like early sure. 70s. Yep, yep. Uh, so we, we did a lot of that stuff. And, you know, I, I was able to moonlight as Ashen guitar player. So so that's when I started doing some studio work. Uh, her engineer, John Arias, was really nice to me. And he would throw me stuff, you know, hey, we got a jingle or a TV thing coming in. You know, you want to play guitar on it. So that was um, kind of I started to move from setting things up to actually playing. So that was great. And then, unfortunately, when her entire catalog was finished, they closed the studio. And that's what brought me back to Rhode Island. And I, I hooked up with Steve Smith and the Nakeds. And that's how I started touring with Clarence Clemens. Yeah, talk uh, a little bit Clarence, about that. Uh,
1: that must have been quite an amazing. So this
2: is during the time when Springsteen had put E Street Band on hiatus. So this is most of the 90s. So everybody in the E Street Band were kind of doing whatever they wanted. And so Clarence and Steve Smith had been great friends since the 70s you know B- Cafferty and beaver Brown so I saw Johnny and the Asbury Dukes East Street band the nakeds there were a whole bunch of these groups who started out in the same circuit they all like, knew each other you know and John Cafferty of course is Steve Smith's cousin so right, right. Um, it was it was like a, a circle of uh, camaraderie you know like honor among thieves they were like different pirate <laughs> ships with and so they were friends and uh, you know the nakeds would basically be his band so I played oh my gosh hundreds of shows with him and Later on, uh, Nils Lofgren would join us. So I played with Nils probably six or eight times along with Clarence. So we we had to learn a bunch of his songs and he was amazing. And the whole experience was incredible, you know, because I just had these memories of being a a kid or a preteen driving around with older friends or older cousins listening to that sound. That's all those sax solos on all the classic East Street records. And now I'm standing next to that sound. It was just, you know, it gave me goosebumps just thinking about it It was very very incredible yeah it
1: sounds it sounds incredible and he
2: was a lot of fun he was great and nils lofgren was literally like the nicest person in the world very gracious and uh it was cool and then uh, you know every once in a while somebody from east street would show up like max weinberg came to a bunch of shows in jersey this is right around when he was starting to do the conan o'brien show right so he was kind of coming back on the map it was great it was a great experience my first time on a tour bus you know, we, we lived large. I mean, we, we weren't, you know, scrambling for places to sleep on the floor. It was, it was like, I, I went from zero to 60 in a very short period sure. of time. And, uh, I got a bit spoiled you know, at a young age. I was like, Oh, this is how it is. You know, there wasn't <laughs> a quite. kind of punk rock sleeping in a van, right. with 10 people like We, we, we were treated very well and the shows were great. I mean, we were, they were like three hour shows. They were really long and it was fantastic. You know, I look back very fondly on that. Was this around the world or just mostly in the States? it was in the states, but we did go to Canada a couple of times. I played to fifteen to twenty thousand people, maybe like five or six times with him and And the first time was in Ottawa, we played at the Ottawa Blues Festival. and that was I think it was like fifteen or twenty thousand people, this giant park, you know, for the first time, and I was only twenty four and it was just incredible. And then we did. We did a healthcare rally for then President Bill Clinton in Jersey City, and oh, that was wow. that was even bigger. That was like twenty five thousand people, and it was it was crazy, you know. And they were they were pals, they were buddies, because I think Clarence played one of his inaugural balls when he was first uh, elected, you know. And Clinton was the sax player or whatever. Yep. So, yep. And then there were a few other outdoor festivals that we did that were just huge, and and that's a whole nother skill set. Everything is bigger, everything's more exaggerated. Your your movements on stage to go from playing to a club to you know what. 15 to maybe you know what 500 people and then all of a sudden you can't even see you know almost a mile away as the rest of the people in that setting so anyway uh, just to continue the story you know springsteen reunited uh, E street in the late 90s and we didn't really see him again although i did get to see him in concert a couple of times and uh there was one time in the boston garden where basically like all of the nakeds went up there uh, as as his guests and and that was really cool so we got to hang out backstage and But we didn't uh, we I didn't really play play with him again after that, although he did go back and play with the Nakeds many times in the 2000s, mid 2000s uh, before he passed away. Um, But so I I, I wanted to do my own uh, solo stuff. You know, I have four of my own CDs out. I'm also a songwriter. So I wanted to do my own original material and I wanted to do some other things, including theater.
1: I should say before you go on that I met you uh, personally in 2009 when you started uh, playing with my band. But before that, maybe some four years earlier, I was writing yep. a music column for a local paper, Motif Magazine. And yes, uh, yes. Your, your name came across uh, my desk and I was reviewing yep. one of your CDs and I, I was blown away by it.
2: it I appreciate it.
1: And, and it, was, it was so authentic. I, I think I said somewhere in there that if it was 1979, you would absolutely be in the top 10.
2: <laughs> thank you and, it, and I,
1: I and i mean that I, yeah, in the nicest I, of ways you know
2: i take i took that as a great compliment and I, I i you know i still have that and i use that parts of that review you know i i really appreciate it and and have a lot of gratitude to you for that for that great review and yeah i i never really was into like a lot of us i was never really into the flavor of the month and or what was current right that second you right. know my my tastes run from 50s rock and roll into like you said late 70s early 80s power pop sure That kind of stuff. And so I I ended up doing... Gosh, a lot of musical theater. I did two shows at Trinity Rep. Played uh, this great blues musical called *Thunder Knocking on the Door*, which starred uh, the legendary Leslie Uggam. That was incredible. And I and then I did a bunch of shows at Perishable Theater. And then I did started working at Courthouse Center for the Arts. And when you say uh, you were the doing
1: pit. these shows, what were you doing exactly?
2: Was it was I it... was on I was on guitar. I was the pit yep. musician. Okay, so okay. it was like classic classic Broadway show. You know, you're in the pit. Yeah, uh, one eye on one eye on the score on the sheet music, and the other eye on the the conductor or the musical director. And sure. Um that was great and and so again another skill set that I had to really learn in a you know for all of you uh, people who, who you know looking to pursue music the whole parable of my story is do everything do as much as you can I I never locked myself into one scene or one style of music or one genre I I was very lucky um in that I always liked a lot of different areas of it and and I was able to do it so you know it, both of them have to go hand in hand um so, you know, again, I'm going from like assistant engineering, Barbra Streisand, and now I'm playing in um, musical theater. And I did about six shows uh, for Courthouse Center for the Arts, and uh, we were closing one of the last ones. And the, the director came up and said, well, we're doing the Buddy Holly story next summer. And, you know, are you in? And I was like, yeah, of course. And I thought he meant playing in the pit or being like the second cricket or something like right, that. And right. he said, great, you're, you're, you're going to be Buddy. You're going to play the lead role. Just like and that. Was, yeah
1: no audition ten- no-,
2: no no nothing wow. and i and i pointed out that i had never acted i never studied nah, acting Yeah, and he said don't worry about it we'll teach you you have a whole year early on i memorized the script i got a bunch of clips uh, of him talking uh, including the famous telephone conversation that he had with a with a record executive right um he was having problems with his contract and a, a version of one of his songs and so it's kind of like 6 minutes of him talking and there were some other clips of him talking in his he he had a, um, a, an early reel-to-reel tape in his apartment when he moved to New York City. And so I listened to those. So I just worked on it. I mean, I had a whole year to research it. And we did it. It was a miracle. We pulled it off. And I was terrified the whole time. It was just the scariest thing I had ever done. But somehow we did it, and we made it work. We got great reviews. And the, so, the show basically sold out. Um, the whole run sold out. And we, we closed the last weekend, the last three shows at the Park Theater in Cranston, yep. you know, which is a pretty big theater. And um. My parents were teenagers in the 50s, and that was their era. And when they started dating, they actually saw Buddy Holly at an Alan Freed concert at the Brooklyn Paramount. And so oh, wow. they came to see me play him like three times. They came to three of the shows, and that meant a lot to me to go full circle. I mean, that's where they came from. They saw this guy for real when they were dating his teenagers, and now they're seeing me play him. And, and that was my real sign of approval, like, all right. If they think I nailed it, then I nailed it, you know? Well, the critics loved it. Rock fans.
1: The critics loved it. I got a, uh, the journal, I think said, Eric Fontana's Holly is a charming mix of well-spoken Texas and an ambitious headstrong artist. Uh, yeah, we were stunned
2: because, cool. you know, God bless Channing Gray. Uh, he doesn't suffer fools gladly. He's quite a taskmaster and I was ready to get just annihilated. Uh, and for good reason, I thought. And then here we go. He turned around and gave me a great review. You know, like you said, I was fabulous and, um, but, you know, our director pointed out ahead of time and he, and he headed this off at the past. I purposely cast musicians, not actors in the lead roles of the of the main characters, right. um, because I felt it was more important to have the music down rather than have amazing actors who, you know, how to learn how to play guitar. So he, he let everybody know that. So I think that transparency helped us a lot. All the reviews did mention that, you know, so and so is not a full time actor. And they would just mention it and then leave it at that and then go on to all the positive things. So sure. I thought that was really wise of him and that helped it out. And uh yeah, so Barbara Streisand, Clarence Clemens, Buddy Holly. I feel like the guy from Quantum Leap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look up that show Quantum Leap, folks. Um like how did I get here? You know, That's and cool. uh,
1: You must have met a lot yeah. of people though, even people you didn't work with. You must have met some
2: I have amazing yeah, people. Yeah. And I hear you met and little it's, Richard once? I did. I, I met him when I was living in Los Angeles. Um, he was going to see uh, a Johnny Johnson show. And for your listeners who don't know who Johnny Johnson is, he was the original piano player for Chuck Berry. And he's yep. featured prominently in, in the movie Hail, Hail Rock and Roll. Right. So I wanted to go see him. And he was playing at this place on Sunset Strip called Club Lingerie. It was a really beautiful club. Like It wasn't a, it wasn't a Sunset Strip like, hair metal place. It was um, which I love going to those. Those were fun. Don't get me wrong. Oh, yeah, but this was more like like a showcase kind of place. like Leon Russell would play there. You know, you'd have like um all these kind of boutique artists. So anyway, Johnny Johnson's playing there, and i I'm waiting in line to get in, and this gigantic limo pulls up and out pops little Richard. So he goes in and the rest of us go in. And I didn't know it at the time, but there, the Johnny Johnson was two shows, and you had to pay to see both of them. You know, the first show cleared out, and then the second show cleared in. I hid in the bathroom. I snuck in the men's room, and I hid there for twenty minutes so that I could see the second show without getting thrown out and bang. <laughs> so I, I come out, and I'm walking out, and who's walking toward me is Little Richard. Wow. And I was like, oh my god! And so you know, you know that thing that happens when you're you're tr- you're coming towards someone, and you're trying to get out of each other's way, but you keep getting you keep going in the same direction yeah, and yeah, getting yeah. each other's way. So that's that's what happened. We kept trying to get out of each other's way and I, I just stopped and I stammered and I went, I love you. Thanks for the music, Richard. And he goes, That's all right, baby. And he gave me a big hug. He asked me where I was from and I said Rhode Island and he's like, All right, baby, enjoy the show and he just like walked away and it was incredible. Like there he is. It was like meeting um somebody right off Mount Rushmore, you know.
1: And he was uh, in like full little Richard Regalia. Oh yeah. 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 yeah.
2: No, there was no mistake. No <laughs> and he loved johnny johnson you know he was a huge fan and they were friends yeah um because they you know they slugged it out in the same alleys back then i mean they came from the same place and uh but that was incredible to see johnny johnson and the other thing that stands out is that a few years later i was remembering the show and johnny johnson's um band leader his guitar player was jimmy vivino who was also Colin right? o'brien yep. uh yep. yeah yeah and i was like that guy looks familiar and, oh i remember he was little richard's band leader um And so that was really cool. Yeah, Little Richard. And then years later, when I moved back to Rhode Island, I I saw him live at the Warwick Musical Theater at the tent on the Rhode Island stage. But to see Little Richard in concert was phenomenal. Uh, He sang everything in the same key. His voice was uh, exactly the same. He had two bass players. The only band I've ever seen ever that had two bass players.
1: Yeah, you hear about that more in the studio, but I've never actually seen a live band there. Yeah,
2: he had one guy that was holding down the regular basic rhythm. Then he had another guy who was throwing in all these like licks and, like, fancy stuff. And it sounds weird. Uh, it sounds like it shouldn't work, but it did. Did he have horns with him? Yeah. Yeah, I think he had two horns. It was a pretty big band, you know, but he was just incredible. I mean, he was a one-man band. He could have just been on piano and done the show. So, Did you ever get a um, chance to see Chuck Berry? Uh, yes. I see- saw him in, in uh, Garden City in Cranston. I right? was
1: at that show. You were at that show. Yes, so you I remember he,
2: he arrived uh, a tad late. Uh, yeah. His explanation was that the um they kept him up at, at TF Green Airport because they were going through his guitar case. Uh, and all he kept in there was his toothbrush and his comb, and he doesn't know why they were going through his guitar case. So that was like his speech. Yep. And then the classic Chuck Berry story was that he he kept stopping and starting songs at the beginning, which was his version of a sound check. Right. And right. then he did the show, and the, it was a pickup band of these older gen. They it looked was, like they had just...
1: I think it was Reminisce, if I'm not mistaken. Something like that. Yeah, and, and they I were was, like
2: in white shirts and black ties. We all ties went and, there
1: as a pilgrimage, um, my me band. Me too, yeah. And yeah, yeah. We, I'm sure you did. We were so so pissed off because we wanted to, we wanted that gig so bad you know we want to be uh, the I'm show sure. and um the only cool thing that came out of that was at the end of chuck's show right before he did his last encore my singer at the time eric now god rest his soul yes, yes said let's 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 go around back because we could see chuck's trailer and he had his like lincoln continental that he drove yeah, himself i remember that
2: yeah yep because i was pretty close too
1: yep so we went around back and there was like a couple of people hanging around, and Eric thought real quick and said, um, you guys waiting to see Chuck? And they're like, yeah. Oh, no, he's leaving, man. We're just we're kids of the roadies. We're just waiting for a ride home. <laughs> All right. So they took off, like four or five people. And Genius. And it was just me and Eric, and there comes Chuck Berry walking up.
2: Wow. And I said,
1: sir, what an honor to meet you. He goes, give me a minute. I'm just going to change. So he gets in the trailer. Yeah. Comes back out. He shook my hand. I mean I felt like like a, like an infant sh- shaking a giant wow. hand. huge wow. huge person, big man. Yeah. He couldn't have been nicer. I love um, it. And which it's it's sad when I hear the stories that you are going to hear a little bit later from people who had worked close with him that he could be so difficult.
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah, he he went through a lot of really horrible uh unjust, unfair, mean-spirited times uh in an in an era uh, in, in certain parts of this country, so you know, everybody's got their good days and bad days, and they got their days when their, their struggles get the best of them. Uh, having said that, of course, um, a lot of other Chuck's issues were certainly of his own doing. You know, I mean, Jerry Lee Lewis, the same thing. You know, it's like after you slam your hand in the car door 15 times on purpose, don't complain that your hand hurts.
0: Oh, I done search this town from door to door. the sun, hurry to the west, cause I know my whole night will be in a solid mess, I ain't gotta find my lady, I declare I wouldn't lie, I ain't had no real good loving since that girl said goodbye, yes, ever since she said that we were through, I've been nervous, And shook up too. I gotta find my baby. I declare I wouldn't lie. I ain't had no real good looking since that girl said goodbye.
1: My guest today is responsible for producing some of the finest music documentaries of all time, including The Complete Beatles, Roy Orbison, A Black and White Night, Kyle Perkins, A Rockabilly Session, The Doors Live in Europe, as well as the 1987 major motion picture, Hail, Hail Rock and Roll. And she's now written about her experiences working with Chuck Berry on that film and her best selling book, Johnny B. Bad. Please welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, Stephanie Bennett. Good morning, Stephanie. Morning. Thank you for coming on the show. We truly appreciate it. You're welcome. Uh, you are undoubtedly forever associated with Chuck Berry now because of your production work on the film and also because of your fantastic book, which I just finished, Johnny B. Bad. But I want to go back a bit and hear what led up to you getting uh, involved in the whole music film production.
3: Uh, actually, it started with me producing books. I had a book company called Delilah Books, mm-hmm. and we published books about rock stars. and. We were, before Rolling Stone, before anyone was doing it, we figured that people who, like myself, read books about Bob Dylan and the Rolling Stones, that there must be other people, and no one was doing it in America. Hmm. The first one I did, I think, was on Elvis Presley, and then I did a big bestseller on Bruce Springsteen, and then I think we did probably maybe a book on almost anyone you can think of, The Doors, etc., and one on girl groups, which we also turned into a film. Yep. So when we did the complete Beatles, we did a two-volume set that consisted of all the Beatles' music, words and music, and what we did was we put pictures and articles by mainly um, Rolling Stone writers, and what happened was Bantam, who were distributing it, said, how are we going to promote this book? So we said, well maybe we'll make a promotion film you know at that time they had these things pi's you know where you could dial an 800 number and get through the syndicated tv doesn't exist well i guess you have infomercials now right right. infomercials didn't exist so we started making a little promotion film give me an idea of the
1: time frame we're talking 79 80 around there yes it would have been 80 81 okay, okay
3: So you can't make a small film on the Beatles, of course. No. So it ended up being it was it was simultaneously uh, home video came along and video cassettes and companies like CBS and MGM started to put films onto video. And the complete Beatles um, was an anomaly, really, because no one had done documentaries. Uh, new documentaries. And I took it to MGM. They said, well, you can't call it a documentary. It's a a rock and roll film. So, we call it a rockumentary. So, actually, we created the name Rockumentary, even though MTV, as usual, stole the (laughs) name. We actually came up with the name.
1: Should have trademarked
3: it. So, (laughs) after that, we looked at the other books that we'd done, such as Girl Groups, which was written by Alan Bedrock, who's no longer with us. That actually is some of my favorite music that I grew up with. So we decided to put together a film called Girl Groups, The Story of the Sound. And then we had another book called Cool Cats, which was about rock and roll fashion.
1: That was fantastic.
3: Yeah, they never really did anything with that. I have to say I have a copy of it. But then we did a film called Women in Rock. Uh, We had a book uh, called Women in Rock. We did a film called Women in Rock. And then after that, I started talking to Betty Bitterman, who was at HBO at the time, about doing some concerts for them. And we were approached, I think, by Carl Perkins' manager. And I went to Betty Bitterman and said, what about doing a film, a concert with Carl Perkins? And she said, oh, no one's ever heard of Carl Perkins. What? So... She said, if you can get some other people to play with him, then maybe we can make it work. So we called people who we knew loved Carl Perkins, such as George Harrison, Ringo Starr, even Paul McCartney. But Paul McCartney at that point wasn't talking to George for some reason. Mm. And as you know, it was Eric Clapton, Roseanne Cash, the Stray Cats. Dave Edmonds was there too, right? Dave Edmonds was, and we also came up with this idea that how are all these people going to play together? We needed a musical director. We needed someone who knew the music and who could work with the stars. So we, we hired Dave Edmonds. And then when we did Black and White Night, she said the same thing about Roy Orbison. Well, isn't Roy dead or is he blind? He was playing tiny clubs at the time. Yeah. But he had just been signed by Virgin Records to do a a new album. And so uh, I don't think T-Bone Burnett was involved in the album. But anyway, I think that Virgin Records suggested we use T-Bone Burnett.
4: Mm -hmm.
3: And T-Bone's idea was to use Elvis's old band to back up Roy. And of course, we then pursued all the other people who we thought might be interested Mm. And, of course, everybody loved Roy. Everybody loved him. Yeah. And the other big problem with that was that the director wanted to do it in black and white. They'd never done anything in black and white. There wasn't even a black and white video at the time on MTV. So it had to go to the higher-ups. Michael Fuchs was running HBO at the time. And it had to go to him. He approved it. So that was... That's and I think it was a good idea because Roy wasn't exactly the most beautiful looking person, you know, and also in those days we were we were shooting on film, which of course is much more expensive, but there was no HD, you know, right, video right, at right. the time. Oh well, then we decided yes, Chuck Berry. Betty said yes, Chuck Berry, but then we felt that Chuck Berry deserved a a major director, Mm -hmm. you know, a feature film director, that it should be a feature. So we went to MCA, and they said basically the same thing. If you can get a feature director, then uh, Susie Peterson had just started a new division there to do low-budget feature films. Right. Although I think ours was not as low as she hoped it would be. Mm. We interviewed Bob Rafelson, Barry Levinson. Mm. We offered it to Milas Foreman.
1: I love the Bob Rafelson story.
3: Yeah. He invited us to go to Le Dome, which was the restaurant in Hollywood. Right. We're sitting at the table, and Chuck walks in with this brown paper bag, and Bob says, you can have anything off the menu, Chuck, anything. And he takes his two Big Macs out with his orange juice and his piece of apple pie (laughs) and says, you know, I, I have my lunch.
1: And this is like one of the fanciest restaurants in the area,
4: right?
3: Yeah, yeah, it was the showbiz. Everybody yeah. in there was a star, or right, would be right, star. Right. So, and then Taylor Hackford was really clever. At one point, he had gone to this Chinese restaurant with his son in on Sunset Boulevard, and Chuck was there. Mm-hmm. This was years before we did the film, and he actually got Chuck's autograph for his son. So what we did, with each director, we had a meeting. And Barry Levinson, we met in a suite in the Hyatt Hotel, whatever it was called, Hyatt Regency. Taylor suggested having lunch or dinner at this Chinese restaurant. And it was the perfect place for Chuck.
1: Sure. Was that your first, with the Bob Rapleson story, was that your first
3: meeting with Chuck? Well, we, we went to his, uh, I wrote him a letter and actually, um, I think we were going to put it in the book, but we didn't. Initially. Anyway, I had, I had written him a letter. And initially, it was going to be for television. So it got very complicated when it became a feature film, of course. yeah. I don't think Tom and I met him until were, the deal was done. In other words, I think we met with the directors, but we didn't. I I don't know whether we met him beforehand. And then, of course, we flew to Wensfield. He said he had this club where we could do the rehearsals. Basically, we were scouting for places to... And then we thought we should film it at the Fox in St. Louis because, of course, that's where he's from. Right. As you know from the book, there were all sorts of happenings that went around that. Um, well, first of all, we were shocked when we got to Chuck's house because it looked like it was just sort of thrown together. You know, We imagined a big mansion, and it was literally a house that Chuck built. I mean, he built the house himself. Right. Maybe with some other people, but you know, it was he had a lot of land, and mm-hmm. at the time he used to have events there. He saw all these festivals going on, and he figured that he could do the same thing. You know, charge people and also sell drinks and right. whatever. I I don't know whether he was, I think he was shut down. I'm not quite sure why. Maybe he didn't have an alcohol license or something. But anyway, for a time, he was making a lot of money having these, I didn't know him then. I'd never been to them. But he was making a lot of money from having these festivals. But when we went there, the swimming pool, which was shaped like a guitar, was empty. The place looked like it was pretty broken down. His girlfriend and his assistant both lived in RVs around the property. And, of course, Chuck was on the road all the time, so I don't even know how much time he spent there himself, mm. you
1: know. Not what you'd expect from a man of his stature. And
3: Well, I, I think when we walked in and saw this big screens, that were, they weren't these big TVs, they were, it was projected. Mm-hmm. And he had two of them, and on one of them, I think you saw this in the book, one of them was concentration camp footage, and the other would be the Playboy channel. So we walked in, we had this extraordinary sight of these massive screens, you know, down to the floor right. of these contrasting images on the screen. And I don't know whether he did that to shock us or whether that's what he watched, He's probably Damn just trying right. to play with
1: you guys, play with your heads and keep you off-centered. Yeah.
4: <laughs> you know what I mean?
3: Uh, <laughs> and then he um, he said, well, you know, you don't have to stay in a hotel. You can stay here. There was a local motel, basically. So he built a wing on the house, like almost overnight. <laughs> he built this wing. And we, Keith Richards included, we went and stayed there. But it was... Again, it was made of like plasterboard, you know, that Mm. you could smell the formaldehyde. And uh, in the room, Taylor and Helen, Miriam were there. And in the middle of the night, well, actually, when I was, I guess everyone had gone to bed. I must have gotten up and turned the sink on. And the whole plumbing came apart. And the room was literally um, a lake. Mm. Now, I didn't know where Chuck was. He kind of... You know, he would disappear all the time. Yeah. And we had no idea where, where he was. And I ran through the house calling his name, and Yvonne, I called her name, but she was in the trailer. Anyway, eventually they arrived and with this big vacuum cleaner, but what happened is that they vacuumed the water up, then it all poured out the other side. Mm. I mean, I don't know what they were thinking, but um, so I, I slept on this bed, literally you know, a floating lake. Was, um, and then after that, Chuck said, well, Keith said, well, Chuck, you have to come and stay with me in Jamaica. Right. And Chuck wasn't very keen about it. But I said, look, you have to, because he stayed at your house, which I was amazed that Keith did, by the way.
1: We should say that and Keith was the musical director. Behind yes, this entire Keith project, was a, was, Keith, yeah,
3: Keith was, a, Yeah, oh, talking about musical directors, yeah. Ri- initially, we approached Robbie Robertson right. um, to be involved with the film because The Last Wars was my favorite film of all time. Sure. Robbie, when we met with Robbie, Robbie said, Keith, and remember, this was the time when Mick Jagger decided to do a solo album. So if Mick hadn't done a solo album, we would never have had Keith. Sure. So we were extremely lucky. and He was really pissed off at Mick at the time, too. Sure. Um,
1: For good reason, too.
3: So what Keith had hoped was that we would go to Jamaica and that we would, they would come up with some new songs. But as soon as Chuck walked in and saw all these rustus smoking dope, he freaked out and turned to me and said, I'm not staying here. So, it was, you know, it was a typical thing. It was like he had to throw a curveball at everything, right. you know. So, I'm like, how can, I, how can I tell Keith that, you know, the beautiful house, right? I can imagine. That he won't stay. <sighs> and, um,
1: and Keith seems like a very sensitive, despite all, all that outward appearance or what people think they know about him, he's a very sensitive, kind man. Am I wrong?
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, there are two sides to Keith, I think. But I think he is very sensitive and very sweet. Mm. I think, of course, he can be a raging bull as well. Oh, sure. He yelled at me after the show was over. Really? (laughs) He was pissed at me for (laughs) getting him to do it. Um, (laughs) But obviously not not later on.
4: Right.
3: And then, of course, he introduced Chuck. Keith introduced Chuck to Steve Jordan and said, You know, he's your drummer. And Chuck said, He's not my drummer. Uh, he had the idea that he would use this local band in Wentzville that he used to play with at this club. Mm. That I think he later bought this club. Mm-hmm. And of course, Keith wanted the best musicians, you know, for the show. So that was a, an ongoing battle. And so he didn't stay with him. He ended up, we got him a room in the hotel where we were all staying. He was very uncomfortable in Jamaica. It was as if he, he, you know, everyone called him bro, you know, and he didn't really like that. He, right. It was interesting. We went and had jerk chicken one day, and um, he didn't like hanging around. In fact, he left. <laughs> he got in the car and left and went to the airport, and we, we stayed, and he left. So it wasn't actually very productive.
1: And if I could just stay there for a minute, I'm a professional musician, so this part really got to me, how, while in Jamaica, Keith was under the impression, or maybe wishful thinking, that he and Chuck were going to sit around with a couple of guitars and work out some new songs, some new material, because Chuck hadn't hadn't written anything new at that point, 15, 20 years, probably. And it kind of bothered Keith that Chuck had no interest in that whatsoever. No. That's, I, mean, I,
3: I think he always wanted to own everything himself. I mean, I, I don't know why. I mean, honestly, um... On well, the
1: book, you mentioned that he might be bipolar a couple of times. I think you're onto something.
3: Yeah, well, you know, his behavior was so, you know, as you know, when we went to the prison, he had picked up one of his daughters. I don't know which one, um... Was it Ingrid? Wasn't Ingrid? No. Wasn't, no. No, Ingrid was in the show. Yeah. One of her other his other daughters. We picked her up from a mental home. Wow. As you know, and we were, if you read the book, we were. Um, he drove us into the prison yard, into the middle of the prison yard, and jumped out of the car and disappeared. And we were literally we were attacked by that when the men saw yes. these women in the prison yard. The same time we saw them, we were like, holy shit, what are we going to do now? And there were no guards around. It was very strange. I don't know whether on their lunch break or something. Yeah,
1: this was a very, very compelling and harrowing part of the book. And I had heard the story from the DVD bonus material that came out a couple years ago when that was released, the box set. Now, this is Algoa State Prison. How is it that civilians are allowed to just drive in to a prison yard with no security, and, and prisoners have access to them. What-
3: well, I think that the, there were gates uh, when we drove up. The, Chuck used to go up there and play for them sometimes. That was the prison where he was. Right. He was there for three years. So he would go back and play for the guys I guess they were used to seeing him, and so when we drove up, there were you know there were gates, security gates, um, several of them. They opened the first one, they opened the second one, and then I guess Chuck knew his way around, and he just drove right into the middle of the yard. And I don't know whether uh, I think we got permission to go there, but I think the idea was we wouldn't drive into the middle of the yeah quadrangle, you know, basically right. we were right in the middle on the grass. I mean, there I, there was a, an investigation after that by the um, Missouri uh, governor's office like how it happened because it caused, uh, you know, a minor riot.
1: Because you were supposed to come back. This was just a scouting yep. mission, right? And you were supposed yep. to film there.
3: Yeah. Okay. So, and when Chuck was asked why did he do it, remember he's got his young daughter with him Yeah. that he's just picked up from the hospital. Yep. Taylor said, Chuck, you know, why did you do this? You must have known that this was going to happen when these guys haven't, you know, probably, I don't know whether they, I'm sure they get visitors, but, But and he said, well, I know what it feels like not to have any pussy for three years. That was his response. So it was almost
1: a sacrificial thing he was offering up, and I think that's sick.
3: Yeah, it's like a a kind of revenge. Yeah. um, Kind of... uh, very strange thing to do and of course they wouldn't let us go back there again needless to say did you ever
1: feel you know what i don't need this no jobs worth this or did you because i
3: think that certainly had i have known what it would how it would turn out um i would never have done it if i had known what i had to go through for two years because it was endless you know yeah it was endless on the publicity tour it was endless you know when he was arrested at universal studios it it never ended it it was where he could be difficult um
1: and the money the money a constant bags of cash yeah i thought it was kind of i don't don't know what the word is but you mentioned in the book initially he says well it's a 90 minute film yeah so you get me for 90 it was like a one-to-one work ratio
3: yeah i honestly I don't believe he believed that. I think that he just used that. I really don't think he believed that. I mean, you could say maybe he thought that was true, but, you know. He's not a stupid man. And that was explained to him many, many times by me, by Taylor. You know, everybody explained it to him. It didn't make any difference. I mean, what Taylor did, which I think was a mistake, was to do, he wanted to do two concerts. Now, that wasn't something we had discussed, but Taylor felt like, you know, he needed to get the coverage. I, I think, personally, it was unnecessary. And, of course, it resulted in Chuck losing his voice. Although, uh, the other reason he lost his voice is because in the middle of rehearsals, he went and did a show in, um, where was it now? Um,
1: was it Ohio State Fair?
3: Ohio. Yeah. So, and Taylor actually went with him. Uh, There's footage of that in the film. Right. And it was very cold, it was cold, and he got, I think he got a cold from that trip. I think he was performing outside as well. But, you know, getting on a plane, performing. So, you know, he's stuck, he, he, you know, his shows were what? He used to sing for 45 minutes or something? Yep. He'd never done sung for that amount of time, you know. He wasn't used to singing for that amount of time. Right. So, it was bound to affect his voice and to do two concerts, you know.
1: How long were those um, shows? We
3: did two concerts. I think we finished at three in the morning because remember, with film, you have to keep on reloading it. Right. I think it was three or four. And I mean, actually, the audience went crazy because there were people outside who had been out at six thousand altogether. Were twelve thousand people? Six thousand and six thousand. And the people who came for the second show, of course, were furious. You know, but um, I mean, Chuck does have a point about that. But of course. Wanting to get the money, the cash on a Saturday just wasn't possible. Right. Except we ended up collecting it from the all the uh, vendors right. and whatever they had in the safe there. Before he would even go on, we had to give him that twenty-five thousand dollars, or maybe it was thirty thousand. I'm not sure.
1: Was that the um, uh, incident where you threw the bag of cash at him?
3: Yeah, <laughs> I know. I threw it at him and I, I hit him on the head. I was. <laughs> He looked kind of dazed. I wasn't sure whether he was just sort of pretending, but I remember saying to him, "I don't care if you go on the stage. I don't. I mean, I I said everything I'd been wanting to say to him for months at that time. But you know, it still, it's continued beyond, of course, the concert. You know, he had to get money to do the lip syncing and. I don't know. You'll have to remind me what else happened. Well,
1: and then you mentioned earlier that there was a publicity junket
4: afterwards.
3: Yes, and then we get to London, and he uh, he wouldn't come downstairs from his room. I I flew in the day. I think it was the day of the. Uh, the it was organized by the publisher. He his he arranged it so his or the published his book would come out at the same time. And the publisher was working with Jane Eyre on organizing it. So I I didn't arrive until. I don't know, a couple of days later, because of the, you know, flying from L.A., I went to, I went to bed when I got there, and I get this hammering on my door, and it's Jane saying, Chuck's, uh, you know, there's a hundred press downstairs, and Chuck won't come downstairs. So I got dressed and knocked on his door, and he wouldn't, uh, he wouldn't come to the door, he wouldn't respond. So I went downstairs, and there was this girl holding forth to all the, the every newspaper, talking about chuck and how he had made a pass at her and so i went back upstairs and i said look chuck if you don't come down all they're going to write about is this girl and how you tried to seduce her so he he did come down but he didn't do any interviews he just walked out of the hotel
1: dumb question but the most difficult artist you ever worked with beyond a doubt
3: oh absolutely I, I think any promoter, anybody who's done anything with any artist, I mean, I don't know about today's artists, but, and I'm sure a lot of artists are difficult, but no, I um, I never worked with anybody like, uh, I mean, well, there were other problems with, when we filmed in Jamaica, there were other problems, you know, in Jamaica, Grace Jones missed the flight and we had to put on the Concorde and <clears throat> all sorts of things happened there, but um,
1: Those are more like logistical problems that happen, but the the, the personal yeah. incidents that have, I mean, just what happened to you at the prison alone is traumatizing. And I'm sure you've thought of it many times since. You know, the worst part of this is this could have been such a positive experience for not only everybody around, but for Chuck Berry's legacy. And although I can take nothing away from his music, which I, I love, always have, always will, man. When I look at him now, I think of a lot of the stories you told in the book. And that's not your fault. It's only his. Yeah. And it makes you wonder if a lot of the bitterness he has, how much of that is self-inflicted?
3: Well, yeah. I mean, he went to jail because he stole a car. Right. You know, and he had a gun. You could say, was he picked on? Did he get a longer sentence because he was black? Maybe. He went to jail again for bringing a girl over the border, underage.
1: The man act. Um,
3: He was accused of tax evasion. Obviously, it was true. You know, he could have paid the fine and not gone to prison. Right. But, of course, we maybe wouldn't have got. I think he wrote Nadine in prison. Um, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I think the bottom line is that, yes, the Beatles had the kind of fame and adulation that Chuck never had. And without his music and Stones, without Chuck's music, is, I mean, the first music they listened to was Little Richard, Bo Diddley, and and Chuck. If those guys hadn't made that music, we wouldn't have had the Beatles and the Stones, right? And many other bands. So one can't take away the music from him. But why he didn't give a damn about any of that, I don't know. He didn't care. He just didn't care. <laughs>
1: to thank stephanie bennett for being on the it's only rock and roll podcast and we really only scratched the surface of what she went through putting that amazing film together for the full story you want to check out her book johnny b bad chuck berry and the making of hail Hill rock and roll it's available on amazon kindle and audible Now, Eric, tell me, when you hear about the dark side of not just Chuck, but all the artists that we love, when you hear these stories, does it make you
2: feel different about them when you hear the music? Not really. No, no, because I feel a certain kinship. I feel like I'm a member of the tribe. It's only a matter of degrees, you know, um, a hell of a lot more. People know about them than me and then they've certainly led more extreme lives at the end of the day at the bottom line we're all performing artists we're all musicians you know i'm not i study classical i study jazz but i'm not a classical musician i'm not a jazz musician i'm a rock and roll musician so you know i can i i have empathy and i can sort kind of envision what what would lead someone to make bad choices and what struggles somebody would have and and how jaded one can get but the the flip side of that coin of course is that nobody goes into this business you have to be a certain personality type. I mean, you have to have a certain amount of angst and darkness and and stuff that you you're trying to overcome and roll over to even do this in the first place. So just the fact that you're a rock and roll musician at all, it, that that's telling. You wouldn't be in in that. You, we wouldn't be doing this. No. If we were cut from the same cloth of uh, you know working in a bank
1: exactly. or sales or, exactly. or
2: accounting or something. So so part of that explains that. Of course, of course they were like that. That's yep. why they went into that.
1: And you mentioned upbringing what, what, you too. Know. Look at the guys like Pete Townsend and John Lennon. I mean, they had sure. rough upbringings, and yeah, you know, w- w- what do you think that's going to come out of something like that? And of course, yeah. the music, you know, the songs right. they wrote uh, reflect their upbringing.
2: And also, part of the appeal of, of being a full time musician is is the freedom. You're your own boss. You don't have to clock in at that certain time. You don't have a boss or supervisor to to answer to. So so being self employed basically. You, you have this certain amount of freedom. That's part of the appeal. And right. so that, that personality type gravitates toward that. Sure. Um, now, of course, if you're on a major label, you have, you, you have responsibilities to a booking agent or to, you're setting stuff up. You want to take care of business. So sure. it, it, it's not like you're completely, totally free, but you're, you're basically your own boss you know, your, or your audience is your boss. Um, but, and so that, again, there's a certain personality that gravitates toward that freedom. Um, where, you know, you're not going to tell me what to do. I'm going to do whatever I want, whatever I want. Right. And that's the rock and roll spirit. And that's, that's a, also a business spirit of entrepreneurship. You know, anyone that goes into business for themselves feels that as well. And as long as and you so, have the um,
1: product that can back up that attitude, you'll be that's fine. It. You'll be fine.
2: Exactly. And, and are like, like the story you told when you met Chuck Berry, you know, who, who pays your bills, you know, who your bread and butter is. Sure. You're respectful toward your audience and you make sure that they know that, um, say what you want about kiss i love kiss i'm a kiss fan i know a lot of people don't care for them and part of the cheesy parts and negative parts i i i will agree with but say this they know who their bosses are their bosses are their fans their audience and and paul stanley in particular nothing but respect and love and and making sure that they know we're only here because of you sure and, and you know he he brought that up with the whole rock rock and roll hall of fame thing you know it's like we're, we, the critics don't they didn't give us this lifestyle where we're, our audience did we're a right. fan band uh van halen you know any any group that isn't a critic's favorite but and so as long as you keep that straight in your head and you're good to your fans you'll you'll last forever even if radio doesn't play you if you're just a touring act you will that's where people screw up if you if you mess that up then you're doomed if you're not respectful to your fans and your audience who are paying your bills then you're doomed and yet, then you deserve what you get because not everybody gets that opportunity having said uh, that
1: at the age of 9 yes. i had a back door yeah. slammed in my face by bob dylan oh, <laughs> <laughs> i'm so sorry he came to the uh, the ocean state theater and he was the irony is he was doing his uh his religious tour
2: he was Uh, so very not very christian exactly he's doing the ball he may have thought he may have thought he was hallucinating Uh, that could have been it he may have thought you were a vision that he didn't want to see wasn't ready to see the vision of saint saint don go away demon he cast me out exactly right see that's what i'm saying show some empathy put yourself in his shoes but you know what
1: that's dylan that's cool i didn't it didn't it didn't scar me for life that's a story to tell it's about it's rock and roll It's all part of it.
2: Maybe there was something going on that he didn't want a nine-year-old child to see or to experience. So he may have he may have done you a favor. He may have saved you. Anyway, back to me. Back to me. It's the show about me, right? Not Bob effing Dylan. Exactly. What has he ever done? Eric
1: Fontana story. (laughs) Thank you. Tell me a little bit about what you're doing now. What's on the horizon?
2: Well, I'm 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 still a musician. Um by day I'm fortunate enough to to work in human services. I I work with adults uh, with disabilities. So so folks with disabilities that want to get a job and that are ready to work. Um, that's what I do. So that's my day job, and I really love it. Uh, I'm very yeah. uh, grateful for it. It's very rewarding.
1: Did you ever use music with people? with? Oh, like yeah. That? That's how Spills. I started.
2: Yeah, yeah. That's how I started out What was through music. I'm um, doing songwriting classes, one-on-one guitar lessons, um, little bands, you know, yeah. taking a, a bunch of folks to different group homes yep. uh, where, where folks are maybe, you know, you know, profoundly physically disabled, and it's tough for them to get out. Right. Hey, we'll bring the rock to them. We'll bring the band to them. That's super so, cool. So conscious in there. That's what I've been doing now, actually, since the coronavirus hit, you know, because anyone that I had been job coaching or job developing with, that's kind of on hold. Um, because so many businesses have been closed. So what I've been doing is I've been just grabbing my acoustic and using all safety protocols, going to certain, um, residential homes, right. uh, where, where a lot of the people we support live and doing like a or backyard deck series where I'm about 15 feet away. And it, that's been great. So I, so I've been able to do that. And, uh, of course, like I said, I'm still a musician and I'm still a songwriter. I have um, four, four CDs of my own, you know, Favouring Secret Grace we, we spoke about earlier and um, you, you wrote that great review and I thank you again for that. And, um, Do you have and a website where on. people
1: can check out
2: some of your stuff? I'm on Facebook. I have a Facebook music page and I'm on iTunes, CD Baby. There's a YouTube channel with um, free clips of all of those. So so the cover of the album, the cover of the CD will be on it and you, right. can, you can listen to all 40 of my tunes We're and, gonna... uh, you know... As a songwriter, I, I my my biggest influences would be you know the Beatles, um, Elvis Costello, uh, early Billy Joel, uh, Donny Osmond, you know, Donny Osmond, classic stuff. But I love Nick Lowe, I love Squeeze, nice, um, nice, yeah. But really, it all it goes back to the Beatles for me a, as a songwriter because um, they just they did a little bit of everything, you know. And what's that name again?
1: Beatles. I'll look. Uh, them up, I'll look yeah, them they, up after.
2: They weren't as good as the Ruttles. The Ruttles were way better. Cheese yeah. and onions. Yeah, yeah, I love it.
1: Well, we're going to play one of your tracks on the way out. And I want to thank Thank Eric Fontana for being so gracious to be my co-host. I also want to thank Stephanie Bennett. Please check us out again on the next episode of the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much. Rock on.
5: I saw that a woman in my mind Wish I could find you Wish I could find you Wish I could find you I wish I could find you Take a million years to make a light Take a one love to make it shine Checking on the best role I know. And save my heart until my wish come true. Wish I could find you. I Wish I could find you. Wish I could find you. I 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 wish I could find you.